Well, last week we started our look at the book of Revelation and began our series in the seven letters in Revelation. We have seven letters to seven churches and we're taking them one by one over the next seven weeks. The letters are from Jesus and sent through the apostle John to the churches and to us. These letters are a mix of rebuke and commendation. Five of the seven letters include some type of rebuke. However, today's letter is all encouragement and exhortation. The first church letter was to Ephesus, and while they had great theology and ministry, Jesus rebuked them for having lost the love they had at first. It was their passion for God. It was their love for each other. It was the zeal in making Jesus known to the world. Well, today in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we're going to see the church in Smyrna. If you haven't already turned there, my Bible's open. You can open your Bible and join me in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You'll see there in verse 8 that the letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now remember from last week, the angel was a messenger, likely a church leader of some kind. Smyrna was a large city. It was about 60 kilometers north of Ephesus. It was a seaport town. It's still a large seaport. In fact, it's the modern-day city of Izmir. Ephesus is a glorious ruin, but a deserted one. But Smyrna is a city of 4 million people today. Back in this time period, the emperor Domitian was ruling and was systematically murdering Christians. The people of Smyrna were suffering greatly, and Jesus brings them words to comfort them. Redeemer Church, these are comforting words for us today, words we need to hear. Many of us are suffering in various ways. Some of you are struggling with chronic pain or other sickness. And with these restrictions, you might not be able to get the normal help you need. Maybe you're missing out on physiotherapy, checkups. Maybe you're missing out on other treatments. Some of you are on unpaid leave. You're wondering how to pay the next rent check. Others have lost jobs or are worried about losing a job. Some of you are stuck in different places. Your trips were canceled before you could leave. Others can't get back. I think of our dear members, Joseph and Nisha. We heard from them earlier here in the video. They're stuck in the UK. For a while, Pastor Blaine was stuck in Kuwait apart from his family, only later to be reunited. Wedding dates are being changed. I was in communication with Stacey and James this week and we were chatting about how he and Angel are postponing their wedding. May 23rd will come and go and they'll have to wait to get married. Some members are away from sick family. I think of Alberto Sierra, who's separated from his son, who's struggling with health. Some of you are courageously and faithfully working on the front lines in the medical field. I'm thankful for our doctors and nurses and others. I think of one of our members, Bunty Sam, who's on the front lines testing the blood samples of patients who've tested positive with the virus. I've been thinking of our members who are living by themselves and are lonely. Children, you're still having to learn to adjust to home learning. Parents, you're still having to adjust to home learning. Some of you are facing religious persecution and maybe now you're staying in a home or room 24 hours a day with people who disagree with you. Maybe it means you're being mocked or hurt or even worse. Friends, regardless of your trials, this letter is for you. Jesus is concerned with how the members of the church at Smyrna are doing, and he's concerned with how you're doing. Now, it's interesting that to start out the letter, rather than exhorting them in any way, Jesus starts out by giving them a little CV of himself. 
Did you notice that? Before he says anything else to the church, before he comments or gives them any feedback, the first words he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Before Jesus says anything directly to them, he wants them to remember who he is. I'm the first, I'm the last. What he's saying is that he's eternal, that he was there in the beginning and he will be there at the end. He's gonna be there in all times in between. He's the ruler over all history. And he suffered. Jesus went to death and it was a horrible death. He faced death on the cross. He took upon himself the sins of his people. He became our substitute. He died so we could have life. And then he proved that he's eternal and infinite and in control over all things when on the third day, he came back to life. He rose from the dead. This is outstanding news. Though before that, they had hung Jesus on the cross. They laid him in a tomb, but see, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't stop him. Death couldn't contain him. Now, the basis of the church's comfort is in knowing that Jesus has always been there, that Jesus always will be there, and that he himself has suffered. Oh, he knows the worst suffering, not just physical, but spiritual. See, when Jesus died and he took the sins of his people on himself, he faced the holy wrath of God the Father. If you're watching this video and you don't know Jesus, this is an invitation for you to come to him. He's the creator, he's infinite, he's all powerful. He's the first and the last. He's this same Jesus who left heaven and came to earth to provide forgiveness of our sins. He's the redeemer, he's the Messiah. This is a big deal because the Bible begins way back in Genesis with sin entering into the world through the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And it's continued in the lives of each of us. We're born into sin. Have you noticed that no one has to teach us to sin? No one has to tell us to be disobedient or to think ungodly thoughts. It's who we are. It's what we do. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Regardless of our ethnic background, where we live or how good we think we are, we're all sinners. The Bible says a holy and infinite God cannot let us into his presence unless payment has been made. Justice must take place. The thing is, none of us could make that payment. We couldn't fix our sin problem. And so Jesus did. He did by hanging on a cross. And the good news of Christianity is that forgiveness can come to you if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus to save you. Oh, friend, if you've not turned to Jesus by faith, do it today. Well, the only way the church in Smyrna survived their trials was because of their relationship with Jesus. There in verse nine, we read that the Smyrna church faced much suffering. We see three ways, tribulation, poverty, and slander. Right there in verse nine, let's take them one by one. Let's look first at their tribulation. That word means afflictions. It's serious trouble. It's a burden that crushes you. It seems here to be persecution, though we don't know the specifics. If you look down at verse 10, it says that some of them are gonna be thrown into prison. Knowing Christian history, we know that the Christians were protected from persecution in Rome for a while under the umbrella of Judaism. While they had this protection, they weren't forced to worship Caesar as God. They could instead offer sacrifices in honor of the emperors only as rulers. But after persecution under the emperor Nero, Christians came under suspicion and other religions weren't tolerated. Well, even then, Christians stood strong. They wouldn't pay homage to Caesar as Lord. This stood out in Smyrna because 
That city had a particular allegiance to Roman religion. There were temples built throughout the city. If you know your church history then, you would have heard of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was likely a disciple of the apostle John. John sent him to Smyrna to lead the church. But at one point on a ministry trip to Rome, Polycarp was arrested. He was sentenced to death for not worshiping the Roman emperor Domitian. Well, they brought him to the place of execution and asked him one more time, will you renounce your faith? Polycarp, here's your last chance. You could do it right now and you could be home by evening. You don't have to go through the fire. We'll spare your life. You can go home today. You can sleep in your own bed. You can see your family. But as they were there preparing the fire, Polycarp couldn't deny his savior. And he famously said the words, for 86 years I've served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was faithful to the end. This is what Jesus is calling the Smyrna church to do too. The church at Smyrna, they had enemies on each side of them. They weren't just facing a Roman enemy, but a Jewish one. The Jews had began to distance themselves from the Christians at this point. They thought the Christians were distorting the law, making salvation easy, and worshiping one they thought was a false messiah and a criminal. Not only did they cease from protecting Christians, they became an enemy of the faith. It's actually been told that while Polycarp was martyred on a Sabbath day, some Jews actually broke the Sabbath to help gather wood for the fire to burn him alive. Well, by not participating in pagan worship, this not only led to persecution, but there in verse nine, it led to poverty. This persecution meant that the only way you could really be prosperous in this society is if you participated in pagan worship. Citizens were required to sacrifice to the emperor at certain times, and if not, well, they would suffer financially. So the second trial the church faced was poverty. If citizens wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor, there would be financial ramifications. There are two words to denote poverty in the New Testament, two main words. One word means you've got nothing extra. You have barely enough, but it's enough. You're surviving. There's another word used to speak of poverty as having nothing at all. That second word is used here. The poverty of the church of Smyrna was extreme. They had nothing. They were hungry. They were suffering. And not only did they not have anything extra, they didn't have enough. In these days, Christianity wasn't legally permitted, and so poverty could have been the cause of the pillage of their goods by the Jews or the Roman pagans. They'd have no legal way to get justice. They were losing their jobs because they were believers. Smyrna was financially thriving. The city was doing great, but many of the Christians were beyond poor. Redeemer Church, I know this is a big area of struggle for some of you right now. Poverty is a concern for you. Others are anxious about money. Maybe you're distracted by financial uncertainty. You're trying to get through your day, but you can't stop thinking about it. Or friend, if that's you, did you notice something else here in verse nine? What does Jesus say? Yes, you're in tribulation and in poverty. But then we have this little parenthesis, just four short words, but very important ones, right there in the middle of the list of trials, but. Now here's a contrasting word, yes, you're suffering, but in actuality, you are rich. I know you're poverty, but you're rich. This is unbelievable, even baffling. I mean, wait a minute, Jesus, we've got nothing, we're poor. Jesus says, no. You wait a minute, church. 
You have a treasure that far exceeds that of the world's wealth. And what a glorious truth. But I'll pause there as Jesus is gonna unpack this more later in the passage. Let me get back to the church's trials. We see there, verse nine, there's tribulation, there's poverty. There's also slander. Jesus says he knows that there are people who are pretending to be Jews and that they are slandering the Christians. Jesus says those pretenders aren't following Yahweh at all. They're actually worshiping Satan. Well, the church was being slandered for following Christ. Can this happen to us today? Well, of course it can. Your reputation can be destroyed at work for being a Christian. People might say untrue things about you or your faith. They might misrepresent you. Now, all this leads to, in verse 10, some of them will be thrown into prison by the devil. Though the evil one is at work, even though Jesus is eternal, even though he rose from the dead, those things are true, but that doesn't mean that Satan is prevented from inflicting pain. Oh, believers will suffer. Oh, to follow Christ means the way of the cross. At Redeemer Church, we refute all prosperity gospel teaching. You may have heard many teachers online in the days of COVID-19 make bold proclamations that this virus has been conquered by Jesus, that it's been defeated. I've seen videos of people, even pastors or self-proclaimed pastors in the name of Jesus proclaiming that the virus is over as if they have the power to eradicate the world of it with their own word. You can find these videos online. I don't really recommend them. They're just not true because we don't get the boss God around. We don't get to name it and claim it. The so-called prosperity gospel is a wicked doctrine from Satan. The last time I checked, God is the only one who can speak a word and create or destroy. Now, God is sovereign over this virus. We're not. Oh, the Bible teaches something very different about pain and suffering. It says that following Christ doesn't purchase us an exemption to pain in this life. Oh, suffering will come in this life. And there are many reasons for our suffering. In this broken and fallen world, there are any number of reasons. Now, the question that's been asked often these days is why do we have COVID-19? Why? What are God's purposes behind the virus? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at God's purposes in all trials. And it's not normally one thing. God is always doing a number of things at the same time. Well, here are just a few of the ways God uses suffering. Well, trials can be disciplinary. There are consequences for our sin. There are times we will face pain as a direct result of our sin. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through seven. It points out that discipline is actually a result of love, that just as parents lovingly discipline their children, God disciplines his children. Trials can also be preventative. We can face trials to wake us up from our slumber. Our trials could bring us to a place of repentance. God is shaking even now in these days, some of us to repent of our sin. Trials can also be preparative. They can prepare us. Romans 5 tells us to rejoice in our sufferings because they produce endurance. Your pain today could be providing you the means to get through tomorrow. Verse 10, here in our passage, there's the idea of testing. Our trials are training us, testing us to depend on him. They also can be sanctifying. To sanctify means to be made holy. God can use our trials for our spiritual growth in our hearts. James 1 says that we should consider our trials a joy because they are maturing us in Christ. Now, when you look back at your Christian life, when were the times you really grew? In the peaceful times? No, it was more likely in the hard times. 
Also, God might be bringing trials in your life to impact someone else's life. Our trials can be used to help others. Have you considered that? Your trials may not be about you, or at least not all about you. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 said that you could be going through trials to receive God's comfort so that then in turn you could go out and comfort others. Our trials also might come for missional purposes. A Christian who suffers well shines brightly in the midst of a dark world. Your suffering can really open the door for your words. It's a chance to show and tell the world that Jesus is more important than our health, that he's more important than our money or our jobs. Our trials are an opportunity to show the world that God is dependable, that even if we lose everything, Jesus is still enough. Our trials can also simply come as a result of a fallen world or spiritual warfare from the evil one. Sometimes there may not be an explanation as much as we search for one. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, and as sin entered into the world, so did our trials, and Satan continued his, his work today. Though God's enemy is not ultimate, we know from the book of James that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So why are we dealing with COVID-19? Well, I don't know exactly, but it's probably some combination of a few or even all of the things I mentioned. But I do know whatever the reason, God is always working in ways we can't see. And he's always working to bring glory to himself. And each of our trials at the heart of them is God seeking to shine the spotlight on Jesus, the savior of the world. Ultimately, our trials are a means to glorify God. That's really the last point about our trials. Trials put God's power on display. Our trials are not primarily about us, but about God. Well, there's more that could be said, but those are just a few things for us to consider with regard to suffering during the COVID-19 crisis. So we find ourselves in trials. Whether we know the reason or not, what should characterize our suffering? Well, verse 10 tells us. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. How do we navigate our trials? Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Church, what are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Could this be the most common command in the Bible because this is the most common problem for the believer? Last week, we had our Gospel Hope for Anxious Hearts seminar. If you didn't join us, you can find the video content online. Josh Smith did a fantastic job navigating these troubling waters for us. He discussed the nuances of what might be healthy fear and what is sinful fear. He gave us a thorough treatment of the issue, ways to fight fear, ways to be sensitive to others struggling with fear. Now, I'm not gonna be able to speak into all of that here. Let me just speak into what we see in our passage. The most faithful exposition of scripture appeals to application most directly from the passage itself. So how can we fight our fears? Well, several things we see in this brief letter. First, in the beginning of verse nine, Jesus says, I know. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your slander. I know. Jesus is not unaware of the trials the church was going through. Jesus is the first and he's the last. He's the one who died and came to life and he's the one who knows everything. He knows every hair on your head. I know for those of you who are bald and don't have any hair, well, he knows that too. For the rest of us who haven't had a haircut in way too long because of the quarantine, now I don't know about you, but I don't know what to do. My dear friend Usama is the only person who's cut my hair in six years. I might have a ponytail next week. 
But even then, Jesus knows each hair, long and short. He knows your health. He knows your bank account. He knows your work situation. He knows your visa issues. He knows your family back home. He knows your every anxious thought. He knows your endless Zoom meetings. Our staff calls this Zoom neck. You've been Zooming so much, your neck hurts. He knows your every bump and bruise. He knows your loneliness. He knows your parenting problems. He knows your sleepless nights. Jesus knows. He knows what you're going through and you're not alone. Our entire lives and destiny are in the hands of the eternal ruler of history, the first and the last, the one who died, the one who came to life. Jesus is the one who knows you. You can fight your fear of suffering and even your fear of the devil knowing that Jesus knows you and that he reigns supreme over all things. Well, another encouragement in our fears is that our time of suffering will be short. Look at verse 10 again. You may be thrown into prison. You may even be tested. For 10 days, you'll have tribulation. The 10 days of tribulation is an allusion to Daniel chapter one, verses 12 through 15, where the testing of Daniel and his three friends for 10 days is mentioned twice. You may remember that that's the time when these boys went without eating the king's best food. The purpose of this test was to see if they could be just as healthy as the boys who ate from the king's table. Well, the boys refused to compromise and to eat food dedicated to idols. Doing so in this culture would be a sign of, of, of loyalty and displaying ultimate allegiance to the earthly king who considered himself to be divine. So there's no way the boys could do that. Well, the 10 days here is most likely not literal. It could be, but it's probably emphasizing that the trials are temporary. The reference to Daniel's time of testing anticipates that the suffering will be limited. Jesus is saying, dear friends in Smyrna, I know the pain is great, but the pain will have a limit, 10 days. It won't go on forever. An 11th day would come and it'll be all over. No, this suffering is just a tiny little blip on the radar of eternity. The devil will not have the last word. Well, friends, our fears are an opportunity for us to go to God. He knows and he cares and we can be confident our sufferings will end. Just like a child goes to a parent when they're scared, we can go to our loving Father. Well, Christian, hang in there. Jesus knows. And your suffering will end. And if you hang with it, there's another reason not to fear. If you're faithful unto death, Jesus will give you the crown of life. The word for crown here means wreath. It was a type of crown that was given to the one who was victorious at something akin to the Olympic Games. This was a good illustration for Smyrna because it was a city famous for their athletic games. Now the continuation of the promise that flows into verse 11 as well shows us that the crown of life is a metaphor for eternal life. Jesus promises that his followers will not be hurt by the second death if they overcome the temptation to compromise in the face of trials, in the face of persecution. The second death is the final judgment. Apparently here in Smyrna, there will be some like the great Bishop Polycarp who will face the ultimate trial, facing physical death for their faith. But what the Romans didn't see and what would have likely been invisible to them was that every follower had a heavenly crown, that each Christian participates in Jesus's reign. 
Author G.K. Beale makes note that overcoming here refers to an ironic victory wherein the earthly defeat of death is actually the heavenly victory of life. It's backwards to the world's way of thinking, isn't it? We don't get the crown by working for salvation, but we get the crown if we've persevered in our salvation until the end. Now, the Bible knows nothing of let go and let God mentality. We don't just get saved, sit back, relax. No, we work hard, we fight for holiness, we strive to please God, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We stay in the faith by grace through faith. Now, a Christian is one who perseveres to the end, even in suffering. Well, I think the best way to illustrate these comforts from Revelation 2 is to look at a hero of mine, Amy Carmichael. Well, kids, we're finally here. You've been listening intently the whole time. You're gonna to wanna to pay attention to the details of this story. This will lead to the, your project next week. I'll share the story now, and then I'll come back at the end of the video and let you know your specific assignment. Well, Amy Carmichael, she grew up in Northern Ireland, but she later went on a lifetime mission to Donover in rural India. She took care of orphans and helped start churches. She was an extremely hard worker, but at the age of 63, she suffered a terrible injury. She was examining a structure in, that they were building and preparing to be a medical center in a Muslim and Hindu town. And as she was inspecting the construction site, she fell into a hole that was being dug in the wrong place. Someone made a mistake and Amy fell into the hole, broke her leg and twisted her spine. The accident left her bedridden for the rest of her life. She had a hard time sleeping, the pain was horrible. There'd be no more speeding around the compound and she would now live most of her life from her bed. Shortly after her fall, Amy had told her friends that she thought her injury was too great a burden for others. She thought that she was being unhelpful to the mission. She grew increasingly discouraged. A friend sought to encourage her and pointed her to Revelation Chapter two, verses nine and 10. To our very passage today, Amy studied it, and these two phrases stood out to her. I know and do not fear. She actually had those words printed on wood and put in her room over her bed with a light that shined on them for the rest of her life. She read them every night, even wrote a poem about them. And next to the words there hung a painting of a mountain. It was a painting of the Matterhorn, this mountain in the Swiss and Italian Alps. And you can see next to me the picture of the actual spot in her house where her bed used to lay. My friend Tim Challies took this picture on a recent trip there. You can see the picture of the mountain still hanging up today. This was about 70 years ago when she passed away. But for Amy, this picture displayed the strength of the mountain and the beauty of God's creation. It reminded her of the strength and beauty of her God, that God is strong enough to care for her in her every trial. And to that end, she was encouraged to persevere, to climb that mountain, and she did. After the accident, she wrote seven books on suffering. One biographer noted that God used her pen in more ways after her accident than before. She would later fall one more time, and for the last three years of her life, she couldn't leave her bed at all. By the end, she couldn't even write. But at one point in time, it was noted that as she lay down in her bed under the painting, under that mountain, she would proclaim, let us die climbing, let us die climbing. See, Amy never gave up, she never gave up. She understood that the promise at the end of this passage is the same promise that's expanded in chapter 20, where believers are rewarded with life. 
And so Redeemer Church, let's keep going. Let's keep climbing. While the climb may be difficult, while there may be persecutions and tribulations and slander and suffering along the way, at the top is the crown of life given to believers. And it's worth it. Oh, it's so worth it. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter eight. We know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, you may be poor, but you're rich in heavenly realities. We're gonna be with Jesus forever. My friend, just keep going, just keep climbing. Do not fear, Jesus knows. He knows your sufferings and he's with you. The time is short. Before you know it, you'll be at the peak and he'll be there. Now, I didn't tell you this in the beginning of the sermon, but do you know what Smyrna means? Well, the word means myrrh, like a perfume. It's used to describe the anointing oil in the tabernacle. While Christians at Smyrna were experiencing the bitterness of suffering, their testimony was like a myrrh or sweet perfume to God and to the world. Redeemer Church, let that be true of us. During this time of trial, and in the days to come, would the way we suffer be both a light and a pleasing aroma to the people and the nations around us? A Redeemer Church, let's press on to that end. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to suffer well. Help us to trust you in these times. Help us not to look to our ever-changing circumstances, but instead to look to Christ who never changes. Would he be our love and our aim, would he be who we look to? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.